Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. On view now, cross-pollination, flowers across the collection, explores the emotional, psychological, and spiritual resonance of flowers in art. HonoluluMuseum.org. This week on Science Friday, why depression drugs have trouble curing depression. Something happens in the brain and clearly is much more complicated than just filling the tank with gas. And why we still have trouble launching rockets to the moon. I wouldn't, wouldn't say that it's any easier than Apollo. I would say we've learned a lot. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're going back to the beach to bring you stories that aired, reintroducing you to interesting people who spend a lot of time in the ocean. Every month we see an influx of box jellyfish on Oahu's south shore. The lunar calendar is what's used to forecast these jelly invasions eight to ten days after the full moon. And that's what's behind the monthly alerts issued by the city's Ocean Safety Division and local weather broadcasters. We went out at the break of dawn alongside University of Hawaii scientists during a warning period. Take a listen. The sun is just starting to rise. We're walking along the beach in Waikiki on the prowl for box jellyfish. One of those out bright and early was a member of the Dawn Patrol. Suzanne is a member of St. Augustine's Church, which is located just across the street from the Kapahula groin. She was scooping up the jellyfish to help beachgoers avoid getting stung. On Wednesday was the first day I got 81, but the total from all of us was over 300. And yesterday I got 609. I had to empty my bucket three times. The rest of them, when we counted them up, there was over 3,000. And people don't know, and when they see us collecting them, they ask. And it's a good education for people to know that they are dangerous and how to take care of yourself after you get stung. So how long have you been doing this? I joined about five years ago. And this is the Knights of Columbus? Yes, out of St. Augustine's Catholic Church over on Ahua. And so, gosh, have you been stung in this process? No, that's why we have tongs or we have, I have this grabber. We stay away from them. We don't pick them up with our hands because you can get stung. In fact, one of the girls got stung yesterday. When she went to put it in a bucket, one of the tentacles hit her face. How early do you get out here on the beach? Um, we're usually out here at 6.30, 6.45, only because they glisten in the sun and it's easier to see them. Yesterday, you couldn't walk anywhere that you couldn't see them. They were everywhere. But today, not so much. It's a curve, you know, the first and third day, less than the middle one. And the surfers always ask us how many they got. we got because 
they know they're dangerous. Okay, you got one here. I got one. And the tentacles are the poison part of them. Yeah, and they blend in so well. Yeah, it is hard to tell. Okay, yeah. two. <laughs> After yesterday, my, <laughs> this is a breeze. Up, oh, yeah, they come in and in this area. Okay, three. <laughs> Big one. So is it just in this particular stretch of beach by the groin that you monitor, or how far down do you go? We go to the next beach, this beach, and then down to the pink hotel. Okay, so you, you basically monitor from the Royal Hawaiian Hotel down to right. Queen Surf? Right, exactly. We don't have enough people to, to go do the other beaches. I know they had a lot on the West Shore yesterday in Koalina. They said they had over a thousand, which is unusual. Oh, four. <laughs> yep. And you just stay on the shore, you don't go in the water? No, no, no. They usually wash up, you can see them. Yesterday they were just washing up in hordes. But no, I don't go in the water. And then what do you do with them once you collect them? We throw them away, we put them in the trash. I mean, the university, when they came, they took them back for research. But for us, it's just getting them off the beach so that people don't get stung. Hours before, University of Hawaii professor Angel Yanni Guhara was out in the water collecting jellies. She recently published research for more than two decades of studies on the spawning of the stinging creatures to help explain the monthly influx in Waikiki. It's a collaboration with SOAS, the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. Yanni Gihara was in the water all suited up and armed with a flashlight. Interestingly, these animals only appear during a short window of each lunar cycle. And folks ask, where are they the rest of the time? And that's what we set about to answer, basically collaborating with folks at SOAS, Dr. McManus, who's an oceanographer and has quite a lot of expertise in ocean current modeling, helped us to discern what could be going on in Mamala Bay. And basically what occurs out offshore is what's called a cyclonic current. And that is, if you will, like an underwater tornado. So because we have changing currents offshore based upon the tidal status, when the tide is dropping, we have a diamond head current when it's coming in, we have an ever current. That sets up this motion within Mamala Bay in the center of the bay, which is basically like an underwater tornado. And that concentrates invertebrate microscopic prey, the phytoplankton and zooplankton, as well as certain soft-bodied animals such as our box jellyfish, which feed upon this collection of organisms. So it provides a rich source of food for the animals in the offshore environment. So if I were to swim about a mile and a half offshore here off the Kapahula groin, would I run into them? Well, that's what we asked. And we tried to look at the modeling and then go offshore at night and do transects and look for them. And basically we find it's sort of a moving target off there. It's not a set waypoint in the bay, but there is an area at the night high tide where you have this 
diurnal migration of invertebrates to the surface and one will find box jellyfish there as well. So they're not coming to the near shore area every day of the lunar cycle and it's not all of the box jellies that comprise the population that come. It's only those that get triggered that are of a certain age and maturity that can be triggered by the lunar, basically the lack of moonlight for a critical period of time after sunset, they become triggered to spawn. And so their gonads become mature and there are males and females. They swim very powerfully to the shore. We've tried to go along with them as divers and they outswum us. We were being pulled diamond head with this perpendicular current and the box jellies can outswim divers. So, <laughs> so they made it to the shore and then basically the males are broadcast spawners so they drop their sperm and the females take up the sperm, fertilize their eggs and then they brood the eggs until they're embryos for a certain number of hours and then they drop these embryo strands and the embryos then in the water column mature to free swimming planulae. These little tiny microscopic planulae then find a substrate of choice and they attach to that and they become polyps. And they live as polyps then until they grow to the proper size that they can become metamorphosed to juvenile medusa jellyfish, free swimming jellies. And then they get sucked back out into that cyclonic current area and they grow until they're adults and the cycle repeats itself. The adults that come in to spawn, it's a one-way trip. They don't return, but their offspring will then settle, become polyps, and then at a certain period of time, they return. So the fact that we have adults that come every month in doesn't mean that it just takes one month for them to mature. In fact, we've aged them. They have tiny little accretions called statoliths, which are much like tree rings, and there's one ring per day. So by taking all of the adults that we collected along the beach and isolating the statoliths and polishing them and counting the rings, we could determine how old each animal was, and we get the average age of the sexually reproducing adults, and the average age is about five months. This kind of data set does require a long-term commitment in terms of collection, and we did anatomical studies on every single animal, as well as age and size, etc. So the findings really that we recently published represent about 20 years worth of work. So the problem is that a lot of visitors just aren't getting this information, and even when we're out here in full wetsuits and warn people, we hear all the time, oh, I'll watch out for them. Basically, that's impossible. They're really invisible in the water. So it would be good to have better signage out, and really because we have folks from different time zones here, if we could have the signs out from midnight on these affected days, that would be helpful. Also first aid. We've spent over 20 years looking at the venom and looking at ways to mitigate the stings. And a low-tech version is douse the site with vinegar. That just keeps things from getting worse. It doesn't get into the skin. It isn't a treatment. It doesn't stop the venom that's already gotten into the bloodstream. And then a hot water immersion for 45 minutes and safe hot water. Better yet, we have a, a technology. We've received funding from Department of Defense to look at other ways to inhibit the venom and we found a very powerful way to do that safely, which resulted in a full U.S. patent, and part of that funding required that if we were successful, we commercialized this, so we worked with the UH 
College of Pharmacy and UH School of Business to do that. So those technologies are available as a spray and a cream. So you don't need the vinegar and the hot water. You can use this spray and cream. It's a two-step. So it's called Sting No More and it's on stingnomore.com. So the spray has vinegar plus urea plus other actives and the cream has this active that gets through the skin very quickly and absolutely inhibits the venom. So it stops it in its track. And this is important to you because you're sensitive to the jellyfish stings and you got stung this morning. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in the in the true sense of uh, the humor of the universe, they always seem to show me who is boss. So I had a little tiny area between my booty and the bottom of my wetsuit that was a small bit open, and sure enough, I got zapped right there. <laughs> but I had my sting no more with me, so I used that right away. All right. That was Angel Yanigihara, a University of Hawaii associate professor who just released research to help us understand the amazing marine world of box jellyfish, the only species we know that follows a spawning and migration pattern tied to the moon phases. This box jellyfish story originally aired on June 29, 2022. <laughs> Waikiki Beach brings in $2 billion into Hawaii's economy every year. The small two-mile strip of coastline is one of the most profitable places in our entire state, and it's expected to be for the foreseeable future, assuming that there's still a beach for tourists to flock to. But as climate change exacerbates coastal erosion, that's not a given anymore. HPR Savannah Harriman Pote took a trip to Waikiki to see just what it's going to take to keep this economic engine running. I'm in Waikiki on what feels like the hottest day of my life. I've left the haven of our air-conditioned studios in order to meet Dolan Eversole, the Waikiki Beach Management Coordinator for the University of Hawaii Sea Grant Program. Hi, you wore a hat, very smart. <laughs> yes, I've done this enough to know to wear a hat. Eversole has offered to walk with me along Waikiki's beaches to explain the measures we're taking against rising sea levels. But before we begin, Eversole wants to get one thing clear. There is no such thing as a natural beach in Waikiki. In fact, nearly everything we'll see today is man-made. We dredged the reef, we put sand where it wouldn't naturally exist. We tried to force, and we continue to force beaches in areas that they're out of equilibrium. They wouldn't naturally be as big as they are now. That turns the idea of quote-unquote preservation on its head. Normally, you might be thinking nature-based solutions. What, how can we maintain the shoreline here in a more natural way? My opinion is we're way too late for that. We're in a highly engineered urban environment. And while nature-based solutions are certainly on the table, things like reef conservation, reef restoration, face of species removal, that's all great. But we're not going to be able to maintain a beach if that's what we desire by doing nature-based solutions. We're going to have to intervene in a more robust way by building things and adding sand to the system, as we have done for 100 years now. 
Waikiki's coastline is a patchwork of small beaches. So Eversole says there's no one-size-fits-all solution for dealing with coastal erosion. Each beach is a little different. Because of all the structures that are built that go out into the water, starting from the natatorium to the queen surf groin, to the kapahulu groin, to the kuhio basins, the royal Hawaiian groin, and so on. It goes on and on. Each of those structures uh, defines a separate littoral system, and each of those beaches act different to each other. Some of them are chronically eroding, others are not. And Eversole shows me just how stark that contrast can be. The Kapuhulu groin is a long concrete pier and a popular sunset spot, but its real purpose is to trap sand on Queen's Beach. So in this case, the Queen's Beach is in fact super stable because of this groin. It is not eroding, and thus there are no efforts to do any work to it. But sometimes the key to saving one beach comes at the cost of losing another. Now if we turn to our right towards the Waikiki side, you'll notice that there's hardly any beach. At high tide, the swim basin to the right of Kapahulu Groin will be almost entirely underwater. But if the groin stops the natural movement of sand, wouldn't the simplest solution be to just add more sand ourselves? Eversole says that approach is kind of a mixed bag. They're able to bring sand into the beach, but it immediately slumps seaward into the basin. And, and the reason for that is in the 1950s through the 70s, they built this breakwater that breaks down the wave energy, which is great for this kind of swimming pool-like atmosphere. There's not enough wave energy to push the sand from this basin up onto the beach like would normally naturally occur. These basins actually are shallowing up over time because we keep adding sand to them, uh, but we're not dredging the sand and pulling it back up on the shoreline like the waves would naturally do. The idea of importing sand into Waikiki is not new. After all, all the beaches along this stretch are man-made. But as sea level rise accelerates erosion, we have to bring in sand more quickly than we're losing it if we want to keep our beaches. Right now, that means we need to come up with about 21,000 cubic yards of sand every couple of years. So a cubic yard is three feet by three feet by three feet. So roughly a truck bed, a small truck, is about one cubic yard. So we would need 21,000 Toyota Tacomas at one time. That's right. So if you were down here and you saw the beach nourishment project and the large dump trucks that were going up and down the beach, those are seven cubic yards each. And they were up and down the beach all day for 10 days. And they just went back and forth. They were, we were actually timing them. They were on a three minute schedule. So they would go pick up their sand, get loaded up, drop the sand and be back in three minutes, which is really unbelievable considering the area that they're working in. So this system of sand replenishment could work, at least in the short term. But then there's the problem of where to get all that sand. Believe it or not, there is no commercially available sand source for beach nourishment, high quality, beach quality sand. You can't just go and buy sand. You have to find your own source. So it's a very challenging environment to work in. What the state has been doing in Waikiki is looking immediately offshore for sand fields that are thought to have eroded off the beach in the past 50 years. And the idea being for Royal Hawaiian especially to recycle that sand back to the beach. 
The Royal Hawaiian Beach, named for the famous pink hotel whose shoreline it occupies, is the creme de la creme of the Waikiki Strip. And it's of critical concern. That beach is thought to have maybe a 10-year lifespan. If we were to not intervene and do anything, portions of that beach would pinch out against the seawalls of the hotels, and you wouldn't be able to walk along the beach anymore. And thus, the plan for the Royal Hawaiian Beach is to renourish or place sand back on the beach about every five to 10 years. So it's not a one-time fix. Continual efforts mean continual costs. Eversol says we've already invested over $10 million in the last two decades into Waikiki to deal with the problem of coastal erosion. But when you compare that to the revenue that Waikiki brings in, $2 billion a year, Eversol says stakeholders are ready to foot the bill. And that money doesn't just go towards sand replenishment, but towards building new structures that shape the beaches. For instance, the pandemic offered a quiet moment for engineers to sneak in and replace the 93-year-old barrier that protects the Royal Hawaiian Beach with a brand new groin. So this is the new groin. This is the newest structure in Waikiki, the Royal Hawaiian groin. This is the latest in groin technology? Yeah, I, for the most part, it's called a sloping rock rubble mound structure. So it's sloping rather than vertical. And it has, people would be very familiar with the design. It has rocks on both sides. One of the things that makes this particular groin a little bit unique is it has what's called a concrete crest cap or a um, concrete foundation that runs right down the center. And it looks a lot like a walkway, really, but um, it, what that's meant to do, this is a form of climate adaptation, ironically, is in, the original design is um, about two and a half feet lower, but they added the concrete crest cap to accommodate future sea levels so that it doesn't get overtopped. And the way it's designed, you can actually add another foot or two it in the future. If 20, 30 years from now we decide we want to add more elevation to it, they can simply stack on top vertically. So it's a hybrid design between a sloping rock structure and a vertical concrete or close to vertical concrete structure down the middle of the spine. With the trajectory for rising sea levels, do you think that water levels will raise to the extent of the groin and we will have to put something else on top of it? Almost undoubtedly, this structure will be outdated in about 30 years. And the engineers even designed it that way that it, it's meant to be as low and small as possible. So rather than build this big giant structure that will last 100 years, it was designed specifically to be scaled down to be as low and short as possible, but still function. And that conversation came up after the initial design about what about sea level rise? So this concrete crest cap was added as an accommodation for future sea level. And even with that, the engineers say, we're good for like 2030, maybe 2050, depending on which sea level rise scenario we end up with. Um, if we end up with higher sea levels, then it could be sooner. But it's not to say that this structure won't function, it just won't function as well. Eversol says that with enough sand, enough engineering, and enough money, we can keep business going as usual in Waikiki, at least for a few decades. But in the long term, Waikiki has the same problem that all of our coastal communities in Hawaii face. They're just too close to the water. Yeah, if we had the foresight to develop these plans 
20, 30 years ago, we would probably be in a place where things would be set back further. I can't help but acknowledge that New Zealand and Australia have in fact done that. And they saw what was happening in the United States around the 1970s and 80s, and they said, nope, we're not gonna do that. Uh, they don't allow development for anywhere like a quarter mile from the beach in, in many places. And they have this reserve area that's government owned and the, they keep the dune intact. We failed to do that. And it's not just Hawaii, it's the United States as a whole. Those are kind of the legacy effects that we're, we're stuck with in many places. I'm not sure what the remedy is there other than a major natural disaster that kind of checks it and we start over. But those are difficult things to incorporate into a plan, right? Like if the plan is to retreat or move away from the coast, how do you do that? Particularly in a place like Waikiki, it becomes very complicated. That was a rebroadcast of a conversation that coastal geologist Dolan Eversall had with HVR Savannah Harriman Pote. He was offering a forward look on coastal erosion in Waikiki. The original interview aired on June 1st, 2022. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available. Magnolia-Hawaii.com Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Nepo, author of Surviving Storms. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding the strength to meet adversity. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian motor experts, and Chaminade University.
Welcome back to The Conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. We continue with our Beach Day Hanaho show, showcasing people who spend a lot of time in the ocean. Coming up in the show, we'll sit down with award-winning photographer Clark Little, who discovered his passion for water photography, thanks to his wife's simple request for a picture of a wave. But first, let's get to an interview about the healing power of surf. For mothers with young children, finding the time to focus on their mental, physical, and spiritual well-being can be a challenge. One local nonprofit is helping to overcome that. It's called Surfing Moms. It started on Oahu last September. It helps moms and other caretakers connect for what's essentially is a beach day. It's modeled after the popular Surfing Moms organization in Australia. And in the months since its inception in our islands, it's expanded to California, adding new chapters in San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and Redondo Beach. The Conversations' Russell Subiono sat down with the group's founder and president, Elizabeth Maiden, to talk about how surfing helps with the postpartum experience. According to your website, Surfing Mom's mission is to help improve maternal, mental, physical, spiritual health by helping moms and other caretakers get back in the water after having children. For those who aren't familiar with postpartum struggles, can you talk about what some, maybe all mothers experience to some degree after giving birth? It's such a a life-changing event, which is such an understatement, of course, but, you know, you go from being this one man show to suddenly being in charge of another human, which comes with a, obviously a huge responsibility. And I suppose that different people take that on in different ways. And, you know, for some people, it's an extraordinarily joyous time, which is great. And that's what you hope, but, but it's not for everyone. And, you know, it, it can ebb and flow. Sometimes it's joy intermixed with deep feelings of desperation and, and sort of anxiety about what am I doing and how am I allowed to be in charge of this little human? So, you know, and it also sometimes comes with a feeling of isolation and that, you know, you suddenly are marching to a different beat than all the people you used to hang out with. And, you know, unless you have other mothers that or fathers that you can relate to, it can be quite isolating. And in this country, I don't think we have, and we do have some great postpartum support networks, but, you know, there's not a default where, you know, you're automatically say put together with a group of new mothers from the day you walk out of the hospital, like like I was in Australia, I was very fortunate to have that. But I think a lot of people in any country struggle with just that newness of being a parent. Do you have children? I do. We have three children. They're 12, oh. 10, and 5. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. What was your experience like when you became a mom? Would you be willing to share what your postpartum experience was like? Of course. I was fortunate that I didn't experience myself any what I would call postpartum depression or anything like that. But, you know, just like everyone else, I had huge bouts of anxiety and uncertainty about what am I doing? Am I doing this right? You know, what really helped me so much at the time when I had my first child, the hospital that I gave birth in in Australia in Sydney automatically put us together, a bunch of us who'd had babies around the same time lived in the same area. So that was great. We automatically had a mini sort of manufactured, but very helpful support network. But I actually ended up finding a group of women through a yoga, a postpartum yoga class where you go with your baby. And those have become some of my lifelong friends and were a huge support during that time. So I'm just so thankful that I had that. It wasn't until I discovered surfing moms after my second child. So that was probably three years into parenthood. I discovered Surfing Moms in Australia, which is a nationwide network of groups that meet like we do here now. And that was just a total game changer for me. It was just sort of, it got me back into surfing. It got me 
you know, realizing that, hey, I can be a mother, but I can be an even better mother if I am taking care of myself in terms of what I love to do in sport and just spiritually being in the ocean and just having that space to kind of take a pause, surf, come back and be a better parent. So, you know, I mean, I had tons of ups and downs like we all do, mothers and fathers alike, but I was pretty fortunate that I, I kind of fell into a couple of really good support networks. I'm glad that you brought up surfing. What is it about surfing that you believe makes it an effective coping and healing mechanism? For me, and for a lot of the, the moms that I know, I think a lot of us find that being in a situation that's just, we're not in control for a start. I mean, you're really not when you're in the ocean, the ocean's in control. And I, I think that's a little bit of it is being in a place where there's something bigger than you and you're part of that. And you're, because of that, to me, it takes, you know, a lot of concentration to focus on. I mean, there's easy days, but when you're out there and it's a bit wild, that's what you're focused on. And so for me, that's a bit of a meditation, really. It kind of forces me to be right in the present moment and nothing else. And that I think is really nice. I love being a mother, but I also appreciate those breaks from kind of having to make decisions and look after three little humans and, and so on. So it's, it's nice to have that break from that, but also to really focus on just the present and what you're doing and how that makes you feel is different all the time, but I think it can be really rejuvenating for a parent. There's not many things in our lives that, that we can do where we have to be 100% present in the moment. Can you talk about your group, Surfing Moms? Can you tell me, you know, how did it start? Who can join? How does it work? Can you, can you kind of just give our listeners an idea of, of what that experience is like? Sure. Well, it started very organically. Basically, when I, I moved here permanently from Australia, where I mentioned I'd been part of the Surfing Moms group there, which has been around for maybe about 10 years, I thought, oh, you know, I don't know anyone here and I'd really like to get out surfing. And But I've got three small children. And, you know, so it's there's not a whole lot of opportunity unless I trade off with my husband. But I'm not great at going to new surf breaks on my own. I'd rather go with someone. And just generally, I think surfing is great, but surfing with friends is sort of magical. So I just decided, you know what? I don't really have the time or the energy for this, but I need it. So I'm just going to throw it out there. And I just started telling people, whoever wanted to show up, come meet me at the beach at such and such day and time. I'll be there. And if you want to swap surfing, we can. And the first day, miraculously, a couple of people showed up. And then, you know, after that, more or less people showed up every week. We just made it the same time every week. It was at the time, I think Friday, well, now it is still Friday, 9 to 11 a.m. at one of the surf breaks around Kailua. And what we do is we basically show up and pair up so that, say, if you and I are the ones there, you know, I'm looking after your kids while you surf and you're looking after my kids while I surf. And we each have about an hour to, you know, get your kids sunscreened up and get them fed with snacks and happy and settled on the beach. And then we do that sort of one-to-one -one swap. So it keeps it really safe. And then you go out and surf, you probably have like 30 or 40 minutes out in the water, come back, feel better, swap rolls, and then, you know, go home happy and salty and think about next week. <laughs> That's pretty much how it works. But as far as who can join, I mean, we're really open to any parents or caregivers or anyone who has children and would like to get back in the water. It's not just for new mothers. I mean, I'm not a new mother and most of, I mean, there's a whole range of people with newborn babies all the way to people like me with middle schoolers. So it's for any parents or caregivers that want to, you know, meet people, surf together, have their kids have a great time on the beach and, and build that community. What's been the feedback that you've gotten? What kind of results have you seen? What I've seen in the people that have come either once or twice or regularly is just that 
I don't want to oversell it, but it really sort of builds a new dimension back into life. And it's not just getting back in the water to surf. That is a big part of it. But I've really seen perhaps even the most benefit in the community building. I mean, for me, it was just a game changer. I really had kind of not been surfing when I had my first two children. I hadn't been surfing. I took like a sort of unexpected, unwelcome four-year surfing hiatus until I found Surfing Moms in Australia. And that really got, it sort of reintroduced that element of my life back into my life. And I'm so thankful because it's added a new dimension to life that could have otherwise been lost. And I've seen that in a lot of people, the, a lot of the mothers that come, they get back into it and they thought, wow, I think I thought this was lost, but no, I can actually do this. And it makes me feel better, be a better person, better parent. What does surfing do for you? What do you love about it? In fact, how did you start surfing? I grew up in Kentucky on the mainland, so I didn't, well, I started surfing actually here in Hawaii en route back to Australia when we were living there. So I was probably 24, 25. And yeah, you know, I just went down to Waikiki and, you know, took a lesson and got pushed on a maybe 11 foot board and actually stood up and suddenly felt that stoke and thought, oh, I've got to do this again. <laughs> so ever since then, I've kind of been just on the journey of progressing, but just trying to have fun keeps me younger probably a little bit, but also because it's easy to get weighed down in the minutia of everyday life, whether it's work or parenting or whatever, but it pulls me out of that and kind of gives me, it just puts, infuses life into the, every day that I surf, you know, is a better day than it would have otherwise been. And I have, I mean, most days are pretty good, but it's definitely better when I've been in the water and it just gives me a, a, a feeling of sort of aliveness that I don't get from anything else. And I like that it kind of introduces a bit of uncertainty and an element of wildness into your life. And it's also kind of a badge of honor too, right? When you tell people that you surf, their eyes get big and there's always that they're very impressed by you. So I kind of like that too. Yeah. I always like to qualify it with, I've been surfing for a while now, but you wouldn't know it from watching me surf. I'm not that good, <laughs> but I have a lot of fun. <laughs> now for, for moms in states without access to waves, what can they do to have a similar experience? Is, do you know if there's like a kayaking moms or a stand-up paddleboarding moms group in places that are more landlocked? That is my hope, actually, that, you know, where there aren't already things like that, that someone who, say, lives in a landlocked area like where I grew up might see, hear of us or something, you know, hear of the model of, hey, they're doing this with surfing and swapping and building community. I could do that with, as you say, whatever your thing is. I mean, it could be, you know, art moms, it could be, yeah, yoga moms, it could be hiking moms, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of these things do exist. But I think what is great about the, the model that we've really adopted from the Australian surfing moms is that you don't have to pair up with someone and hope that their schedule matches up with yours, you just know there's a certain day and time and you show up and there's going to be someone else and you only need two <laughs> to do your thing. It's my hope that people will start up more of that kind of thing and whatever it is that that gives them life. That was a rebroadcast of an interview originally played on January 11th, 2022, with HPR's Russell Subiono and Elizabeth Maiden. She's founder and president of Surfing Moms. While Surfing Moms was started to help new mothers, the group welcomes dads and other care.
It's been 15 years since Hawaii's award-winning photographer Clark Little jumped into the ocean with a disposable camera to capture his first wave on film. Since then, images shot from Clark's view, a unique perspective of seeing waves from the inside, have been impressing audiences all over the world. Little's third book, The Art of Waves, was published this past spring. We revisit Clark's interview where he sat down with the conversation's Lillian Song to reflect on his successful art career that started by chance. It's really fun to read this quote from you saying, it's been 15 years since I picked up a camera and took it into the ocean to get a picture of a wave for my bedroom wall, a special request from my wife. Yeah, and it's so weird what triggers someone's future, someone's jobs, what triggers your something that turns into your full-time passion. Because I always was in the ocean. I surfed the shore break. I surfed, swam, body surfed shore break since I was a little kid. So that part I already knew I loved, but I was at a botanical garden for 17 years, kind of in the middle of my life and career. When my wife brought that image home, and I told her, hey, what are you buying an image of a wave? Don't go buy an image of a wave. I think I have the skills to go out there and do it. And that literally was the start of me getting a disposable camera and then upgrading and upgrading and then starting to share my work. And it struck a nerve. And because people I think a lot of people were shooting a lot of surfers, you know, surfer magazine, surfing magazine. Not many people were getting into big shore break waves and going inside and capturing the raw beauty. It was a different look and it did strike a nerve. And I was grateful it happened so fast, you know, because of the feedback. I was traveling the world, did the Good Morning America and all the morning shows. Gosh, it's been 15 years. That's a long time, but it's sure it's actually a quick time, too. And there was no real recipe I didn't have any, uh, I guess you could say, it kind of evolved. I didn't have a plan. We just, we winged it because it was happening so fast that it just turned into a full-time career that I, I deeply love and it gives me freedom to spend time with my family and couldn't ask for anything more right now. Mm-hmm. This all started with you and a disposable camera and the will to outshine that commercial wave that your wife brought home. And for that to be how the snowball just started, and you're saying you don't have a recipe, but when I look at your your pictures, what comes to mind really is like the movement, their speed. You capture this wonderful POV, this perspective with an eye for color, for immediacy. This was your backyard, your playground, you were in the water. And these are the things that you get to see. It is interesting. For me, I had to learn the camera. I had the skill to be in the ocean. I kind of know where the spots are where the water's clean and there's a beautiful backdrop and uh, the sun is right inside the tube. And I had that kind of advanced section of, you know, photography, but I had to learn the camera. I did ask a few professional photographers, hey, you know, what, what are the basic settings? You know, what do I need to do to go and get in the tube and take the shot? I'm not a guy that goes through the books and, and read and I don't even go on the YouTube. I just trial and error and, and just being in the perfect spot to capture that beauty. I'm more of an artist. I like to get creative. I learn as I go. Not to say reading the books is, you know, not bad. I think that's that's awesome also. But just the way I did it was just kind of winging it, sharing my work, um, getting it exposed 
you know, making decisions on where and how and what. And, I mean, it, yeah, I, it all, it, like I said, it, it was not, I didn't go to school. I didn't go to, you know, to school for photography. My, But I mean, on a side note, my dad was a photography teacher for 30 years. So is it in the blood? Yes. Um, you know, he was at Punahou for eight years and then he went uh, to uh, Leeward Community College and taught there for 22 years. So I was in the dark room. I learned a little bit of stuff, but I mean, it was more a little kid just visiting dad. And, and But maybe I did pick up on some stuff and maybe I got that artistic eye from my father, which is an interesting story in itself. Hmm. Well, they do say that children pick up language the quickest and it sounds like for you, photography was a language that you were exposed to through your father. And I'm sure that's going to be a wonderful book or story for you to put down in the future to share, you know, keeping the Wahana. But that's just wonderful. I never realized, though, that I never heard your dad taught photography. Yeah, we came, believe it or not. So I was actually born in Napa, California, and my dad got a job at Punahou teaching. He started the photography program at Punahou when I was one or two years old. And so we packed up our bags, we moved on to Punahou campus. And that's where my brother and I at a young age went to school. So my parents took us to the beach at an early age and we were in town a lot back then. And we, you know, we go to walls and, and Waikiki and, you know, like boogie board. And then we finally ended up moving to the North shore when I was, geez, maybe about eight or so. And then we ended up going to Haleiwa, learned how to surf. and. I've always loved Hawaii. I've always loved the ocean. It is my second home. There's no question. Being out in the ocean, I feel so comfortable. And I wouldn't go out in those big waves if I didn't enjoy it. I really do like getting tossed around. And then now just bringing in a camera with me and capturing that shot and sharing those those crazy moments. And so it's it's been a fun journey for me. I mean, like I said, I would not change my career or life at all just because I'm so blessed and fortunate to be here doing what I love and trying to put smiles on people's faces these days is not the easiest thing to do and, and I'm, I'm so stoked at the response and I'm, I'm that people are I don't know I mean I love the feedback I love when people are excited and appreciate what they see you know in, in my work and it makes me feel good and so it keeps me energized and excited to go back out there and get a different wave or a different sunset or rainbow I mean it's it never ends. The journey never ends for me. I'm always out there trying to get something new, artsy and fresh. And I don't think that's going to stop. I think that passion will be there until the day I die. And right now, the best thing I have to share is this new book because it has everything. And I'm really excited and very actually proud to be able to share my work worldwide with everybody. Mm -hmm. And this new book, it's a hardcover with 240 pages, 150 images, but for people who, who want to learn more about you or who want to really kind of you know, get into the backstory of your images, you do have a bit in your book as well to talk about your practice, your technique. With the preview of the book, there's this beautiful shot of just a turtle. Is it? I mean, it kind of feels like it's jumping over the wave. But at the same time, I know that, you know, physically it would be in the water. But you just captured this moment of this turtle. Give me the backstory on this shot. How did you get it? So the turtles, actually the turtles at 
well, they call it Turtle Beach at Laniakea. Just along that coast, there's a lot of turtles that they go swimming back and forth along the shallow shore, right? So what I was doing is as they're coming in to feed off the seaweed and I am stay a little bit back where the waves are breaking, and what happens when the sets come, the turtles turn around and they can feel the water coming and they'll come out towards me as the wave is breaking over. It's a little hard to explain, but... When they're coming out towards the deeper ocean, I capture the shot of the turtles kind of duck diving or swimming through the back of the wave. And what that kind of does, it just makes it look like they're almost flying in the, in the water. So, yeah, I did that. I got a couple awards in the Smithsonian. It's called Flying Honu. It was one of them. And it's so much fun to, to sit back and First of all, just sit back and be swimming with these things. And the turtles are beautiful. They're elegant, and they kind of have their own little style. And to capture it and share it, yeah, people enjoy the turtles or Honu and Hawaiian. And that's one of my favorite subjects to shoot along, of course, with the waves and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so you've been able to just really read the rhythm of the ocean and then knowing for your subject matter, the Honu, kind of knowing what they will be doing in response to the rhythm of the wave. Yeah, where they're coming and you kind of feel it. You know, I mean, I think you kind of feel it more than, you know, you're attempting to do something. You're almost kind of in the zone, at least for me, especially with waves. You know, you feel a backwash, meaning two waves coming that are going to hit and make this glass sculpture. You just got it's like the spur of the moment. You turn to the right, turn to the left, boom, and there's the spray or the whole no. Okay, I think after experience, I mean, I've done it. I spend hours and five, six hours in the ocean sometimes a day. And after a long time, I mean, you learn, you start to get experience and know which way the turtle or the dolphin or the shark is going to turn and you know i mean to get that shot okay the sun's right above it you're going to get the rays coming down as as the shark's coming toward me and i mean so you there's a lot you put a lot of time in it's not like i just go out there and shoot a shoot an image i mean you got to be out there and feel like you are a shark when you're swimming with the sharks or you are a turtle swimming around with the turtle i mean that's literally how i i am in, in there and and it's kind of like if you can fit in there and belong you know kind of be as one then I think it's easier to get the shot. Mm. And then also for you, really hearing from me how you you recognize that you live in such a blessed place, for you to also be in the right place at the right time. Can we go back? What were you doing at the Botanical Gardens? Yes, so the Botanical Gardens, I was actually a supervisor. I oversaw 27 acres of native and tropical plants from all over the world. Started that job when I was 22, Loved it. Loved it. We planted trees and collected new species from native stuff as well as all over the world. And we had different sections. It's a really gorgeous place. So I am a nature freak. I mean, I really do like to see and be around, you know, plants and ocean and mammals and different things. So I did that botanical garden thing and I loved it. And then I had to make a decision. So it was a city and county job great job. I had the, you know, the weekends off and a lot of vacation, sick leave, everything. So when I started to see my photography start to blossom, I had to make a decision, you know, like, am I going to quit this full-time job that I can continue my whole career and retire from to take a risk and jump into this photography thing that I'm not 100% sure. You know, I shared it with my family, my parents, my wife, and 
it was a little risky and I was a little bit scared, but I'm like, you know what? I felt good about it. I had like a few articles printed. I was in a couple galleries and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put all my time into this, resign from the city and give it a shot. And honestly, it was the best decision I ever made. And I got exactly what I wanted from it and more. And so here I am 15, 17 years later since I resigned. I got a gallery in Haleiwa. I have a website where I can share all my work. I got this new book, 240 pages. You know, the book is awesome. I'm so happy. And, you know, so everything is just kind of falling into place. And I couldn't be more blessed. That was North Shore-based photographer Clark Little talking with HPR's Lillian Song. His third book, The Art of Waves, was published this past spring. We'll have photos and links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. The interview originally aired May 12, 2022. That does it for us for today's special showcase of our Makai stories. We'd like to hear from you. Call our talkback line and leave us your comments. Here's the number, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you missed any of our shows, find them on the conversation page with links to more information about guests and topics. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pope, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.